Is there proof Jesus rose from the dead? Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Get out of the tomb. Is the story actually true? Welcome to the Kennedy Report. I'm Kennedy Hall. As you're watching this on its original air date, it's Holy Saturday. I hope you've had a blessed Lent, and I hope that you are preparing after a season of austerity. I hope you're preparing for a season of feasting. Anyway, common this time of year, if you're watching the average you know, television station, you'll see specials casting doubt on the resurrection of Christ. We've all seen these things, History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, something like that. And they'll say, proof that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or did he actually rise from the dead? And they'll have some sort of heretical modern scholarship saying, well, I think they found Christ's bones in this cave somewhere or something like that. It's all nonsense, and it's a cheap marketing ploy. So let's counteract that. So let's prove that Christ actually rose from the dead, that the resurrection actually happened. Now, I owe a debt of gratitude to a few scholars. Peter Kraft is an esteemed Catholic philosopher, and he has wrote extensively on the logical arguments for various points in Christianity. And I, my own self, my own conversion, I owe him a lot for the things that he's done. So if he is watching this, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kraft. Um, there's also two Protestant historians. One is named Lee Strobel, and the other is named Gary Habermas. And they've provided a wealth of information on the specific historical nature of the claims of the Bible. I may have disagreements with Protestant theological positions, but it can't be underestimated how useful their work has been for me and for many others, I would imagine. Combining their research, I'm going to make five claims about the resurrection, and we're either going to prove or disprove them and come to our conclusion. So, the five arguments that I'm going to make, and these are commonly made, about the story of the resurrection are as follows. And we're going to put those on the screen so you can follow along with this list. Now, the first is pretty simple. This is the Christian theory that Jesus did die and that Jesus did rise from the dead. We'll call that Christianity. The second one is that Jesus did, in fact, die, but that he did not rise from the dead, but instead the apostles themselves were deceived. We're going to call that the hallucination theory. The third is that Jesus died, that he did not rise, like the second one, but that the apostles, they weren't deceived, but they were myth-makers, that they made a myth. We're going to call that the myth theory. And the fourth is that Jesus did die, that Jesus did not rise, but the apostles were deceivers. So not only did they make a myth in the sort of religious sense, but they actually made a total conspiracy. We'll call that the conspiracy theory. And the fifth is that, in fact, Jesus did not die. So somehow he got out of the tomb that's called the swoon theory. Swoon means to faint or be unconscious for a while and appear dead. Now, as we continue, it is common amongst atheists and skeptics to disregard the Bible as a way of proving Christian claims. But this is a false method of arguing. You see, if an atheist seeks to prove that a biblical claim isn't true, then he is using the Bible to do so. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. He sees something in Scripture and decides that it isn't true based on a number of factors. But he's still using something from Scripture and then just saying, well, it didn't happen. That's not logical. It's illogical for a skeptic to make a claim about biblical claims and then himself make the claim that the Bible cannot be used to make a biblical claim. Right? He's saying, well, the Bible's not true. Why? Because I don't take the Bible seriously. That's just a fallacy. Instead, we just have to look at the claim. We have to look at the Scriptures. We can use a combination of the Bible, reason, science, 
and common sense to see whether something is true or if it's not. Now, I know we must see through the lens of faith, so when we're trying to convince a skeptic, we have to remember that, yes, we believe this by faith, but faith-based claims are often not accepted by skeptics. So we need to use reason, common sense, and so forth. So let's attack these five arguments, but we're going to do it in reverse order. So we're going to refute the swoon theory. There are multiple arguments against this, but basically the idea is that, you know, the swoon theory is that Christ was tortured, he was crucified, but somehow he did not die on the cross. He was unconscious, they put him in the tomb, and then a few days later, you know, three days later, he actually rose, but not from the dead, but from some sort of coma. That's the swoon theory. Well, this is nonsense. For one, Jesus could not have survived the crucifixion. Roman procedures were very precise in these matters. And in fact, Roman law actually had a death penalty that would be applied to a soldier who failed in his duty to perform the crucifixion properly. Think about it. What happens in the Bible story? The other thieves, they are actually have their legs broken to make sure that they do die. Because you actually die by way of asphyxiation in a crucifixion. Basically, you're holding yourself up with your arms and you can't breathe through your lungs when you let yourself sink into your collarbone. That's how you die. The crucifixion part of it is more of the torture, and it's sort of a symbol of you know the Roman brutality. But the actual death is through suffocating, more or less. Jesus could not have survived the crucifixion. Also, the body was totally encased in winding sheets, and he was entombed. It wasn't just like putting a sheet over somebody for bed. It was wrapped up you know, very, very tight. Somebody who had been tortured, basically suffocated to death, lost a ton of blood, they're not going to get their way out. That's nonsense. Also, the post-resurrection appearances convinced the disciples, even doubting Thomas, that Jesus was gloriously alive. So, if somebody had somehow survived a crucifixion, which is impossible, and they were basically tortured and had blood loss problems and so forth, they're not going to show up and look like they're gloriously alive. They're going to look like they're basically half dead. Furthermore, If Jesus somehow did survive the crucifixion, if he did somehow survive being wrapped in these clothes or these blankets that were very tight on him, and he somehow moved a tomb out of the way, which would take a few men to move, how on earth would he overpower the Roman guards who were armed soldiers? It doesn't make any sense. As I said, there's no possible way that he could handle moving a tomb like that. So the story that the Jewish authorities at the time put out that the guards had fallen asleep This is actually refuted in the Bible. Roman guards would not fall asleep. In fact, just like any officer, if you get caught falling asleep on the job, you're going to get disciplined for it. So take all of these factors. The idea that Jesus could have somehow survived the crucifixion, could have somehow survived being in the tomb for three days, could have somehow survived being wrapped in these tight cloths, could somehow have moved a stone out of the way, and could somehow have overpowered Roman guards who were themselves healthy and holding weapons, this is just absolute nonsense. And furthermore, if he did awake from this swoon or this coma, where did he go? Did he just kind of walk through Jerusalem, this half-dead man walking around and no one noticed, and there was no news about it? It's nonsense. The swoon theory is nonsense. It's the easiest, I think, for us to refute. The next one we're going to consider is the conspiracy theory. This is the idea that the apostles made it up then Christ did not rise from the dead. Well, this has been refuted by various philosophers in the past, and I'm going to read something very specifically here from Blaise Pascal. He's a great Catholic philosopher. 
He gives a simple, psychologically sound proof for why this is unthinkable. And I'll read directly from it. He says, the apostles were either deceived or deceivers. Either supposition is difficult, for it is not possible to imagine that a man has risen from the dead. While Jesus was with them, he could sustain them. But afterwards, if he did not appear to them, who did make them act? The hypothesis that the apostles were knaves is quite absurd. Follow it out to the end and imagine these 12 men meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he has risen from the dead. This means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, to bribery, etc. Only one of them had to deny this story under these forces or still more because of possible imprisonment, tortures and death. And all would have been lost. Basically, what the philosopher is saying is, if you're going to make a deception, an actual conspiracy, every single person has to be in on it, and nobody can recant, and you always have to get your story correct. Think about what they had to go through after supposedly making up this story. If they did make up the story, they were the most creative, clever, intelligent you know, fantasy writers in history. They surpassed Shakespeare, they surpassed Dante, they surpassed Tolkien. Fisherman stories never end like this and are never that elaborate, that convincing, that life-changing, etc. The disciples' character also argues strongly against such a conspiracy on the part of all of them. They were not dissenters. They were simple, honest men. They would not have been able to make up this vast conspiracy that could basically confuse the entire Roman Empire and never be refuted by anybody and spread to all corners of the globe. Imagine how impossible it would be for 12 common men to change the whole Roman Empire with a lie that they concocted. People do not lie for these sorts of things. Common men do not lie for these sorts of things. And also, con men, people that do make up stories, they only keep the lie going as long as it's good for them. They don't go to the cross. They don't have their heads removed from their shoulders. They don't face down being boiled alive, being flayed. They don't face these things for a lie. A con man will lie, but then when the going gets tough, he leaves town. This is not what the disciples did. There could be no possible motives for such a lie as this conspiracy. Lies are always told for some selfish advantage. What advantage could the apostles have had for this? All of them were tortured, as I said. They were excommunicated. They were imprisoned. They were exiled. They were crucified, boiled alive, roasted, beheaded, disemboweled, and fed to lions. Why on earth would anybody persist in that lie? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And if it was a lie, then why couldn't the collective forces of the Jews and the Romans produce the body? That's a common theme we're going to go through. If it's a lie, just produce the body. It goes away. Probably need another conspiracy to show why they didn't produce the body. That's what the skeptic would say. Think of the timing of the Gospels as well. It's all centered within days and weeks of the resurrection, especially in the Acts of the Apostles. So we are to imagine that these common men, they put together a story that was a conspiracy that duped the Roman Empire, the Jewish hierarchy, somehow stole a body, beat a bunch of guards to the punch, remained unarrested for a long time, and then publicly converted thousands in public places. And they somehow figured this out in a few weeks after, before it was, anyway, doesn't make any sense. It's not true, it's not possible that they could have made up this conspiracy. It violates all known and historical, psychological laws of lying.
doesn't make any sense. Let's move on to the hallucination theory. There are tons of reasons why this is silly, but basically what this means is after Jesus was crucified, he didn't actually rise from the dead, but instead the apostles, the thousands in the the crowds, I think at least 500 at one time we read in St. Paul, and all the things that are not written down, they all basically had the same hallucination when they sat down and they ate fish with Christ after, they were actually hallucinating that. When Doubting Thomas was, uh, you know, saying, I don't believe it, I don't believe it's actually Christ, and he puts his finger into his side, that's also hallucination. doesn't make any sense. For one, there are too many witnesses. Hallucinations are private, individual, and subjective. Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene, the disciples minus Thomas, the disciples including Thomas, to two disciples at Emmaus, to the fishermen on the shore, to James, and even to 500 people at once. That is not how hallucinations work. One of the reasons that we know somebody is hallucinating is because they themselves are having a crazy hallucination and nobody else can see it. The 500 saw Christ together at the same time and place. This is even more remarkable than 500 private hallucinations. Even 500 private hallucinations, 500 people, hallucinating maybe with psychedelic drugs or something, I don't know, but they wouldn't have the same one. This was a long hallucination. It would have had to have lasted 40 days, to be exact. This does not happen, this has never happened, and this never will happen. Usually, a hallucination might last for a matter of seconds or for a matter of minutes. Also, hallucinations usually only happen once, except to insane people. This one returned many times, many different places to ordinary people as well. Also, hallucinations don't eat. We have multiple accounts of Christ eating. Again, hallucinations do not eat. Also, you can't touch a hallucination. The disciples touched Christ, famously with Doubting Thomas in that beautiful picture of him, you know, putting his finger to his eye. You can't touch hallucination. Also, this supposed hallucination spoke with the disciples and they spoke back. Figments of your imagination do not hold profound, extended conversations with you unless you have the kind of mental disorder that isolates you into, like, you know, an insane asylum. But this hallucination, so-called, conversed with at least 11 people at once over a period of 40 days. Doesn't make any sense. Again, if you produce a body, which all the forces of the Roman Empire could have done, this goes away really quickly. Hallucination theory is nonsense. What about the myth theory, the so-called myth theory? Well, first, what is a myth? In our modern day, when we say something is a myth, we basically mean something is a falsity. So we'll say, oh, that's not actually true, that's a myth. That's not really the proper way of describing what a myth, as far as a story is, actually goes. A myth, in essence, is an imaginative story that contains truth using allegory and fictional devices to make a point. So if we think about the myths of uh, the Greek society or the Roman society. They weren't true in a sense of objective reality, but they did use literary devices, symbols, images, and so forth. They would tell greater truths about morality, about the human spirit, and so forth. That's what a myth is. The problem is the Gospels do not fit this description. Neither does the Bible, for that matter. The Gospels are set firmly in real Palestine in the first century. And the little details are not picturesque inventions, but the real details that only an eyewitness or a skilled, realistic novelist could give. 
They are written from the perspective of an eyewitness account, and the psychological depth and dialogue is at a minimum. This is not how myths operate. The miracles, for example, they do not fit the fairy tale nature of mythic stories. Mythic stories contain fantastical elements that happen to normal people, where in the Gospels, it's a normal world with a divine person who occasionally supersedes the laws of nature using the supernatural. A second problem is there was not enough time for a myth to develop. We know from traditional and verified dating of the writings of the Gospels that they were written, in some cases, as far as their official version, were written within a few short years after the resurrection. Furthermore, the Gospels are written down, explicitly so, to codify what was already being passed around in the Holy Land. So yes, we have the dating of the Gospels, and it's pretty early, but the actual Gospels had been shared in the churches and were for some time after that. Matthew, for example, was an eyewitness. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Luke, he says who he appealed to. He appealed to the Virgin Mary. This is why in the infancy narrative, after Christ is born, it says she held all these things in her heart. John was an eyewitness and wrote as an eyewitness. And even the Gospel of Mark. This is largely what Peter dictated to Mark. We might even say it's something like the Gospel according to St. Peter. They were all eyewitnesses or written down directly from eyewitnesses. And again, if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, this is, makes sense that he was classically trained and he was a physician because he actually talks about how he's consulted all of the historical sources he could at the time to make sure everything that he was writing down was proper. Also, Paul's epistles, the letters of Paul, they were written during the lifetime of those who walked with Christ. And therefore, if he's talking about things to those who walk with Christ, they could verify them which they did. Anyone who suggests this is a myth is foolish. It's not a myth. It's not written like a myth, and it never has been a myth. Myths are a total, totally different thing. Now, to conclude this portion about refuting the myth, take a look at these ancient authors. I'll just name a few here, but they actually correspond what happened in the Gospels. There's a historical record from 50, around 52 AD from a historian named Thallus. There's a historical record from Pliny the Younger. This is, he lived between 61 and 113 AD. The historical record of Suetonius. He lived between 69 and 140 AD. The historical record of Tacitus, who's a Roman historian. He lived between 56 and 120 AD. The historical record of Mara Bar Serapion. He was a historian from the East. He was writing around 70 AD. There was more of them, but that's just some to name a few. Now, Perhaps the most amazing piece of evidence is found in the writings of Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish Roman historian, and he was writing in the late first century. And he wrote this, and it is astonishing. He says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, are 
not extinct this day. So a Jewish Roman historian says, literally, he was the Christ, and it says, after being crucified, he appeared to them alive again the third day. This is not a myth. This is a historical truth. So, all that's left to consider for us is pretty simple. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Christianity is true. Jesus Christ died. He conquered the grave. Jesus Christ is Lord. And tomorrow, if you're watching this on the Saturday, we get to celebrate this at Easter. So, thank you all. I hope this has been edifying for your faith. And I hope this is something you can look to when people try to doubt that Jesus Christ did actually rise from the dead. If you have liked this, please like and subscribe. And if you could, visit Fatima.org to see everything we have going on to help you grow in your faith and to spread the message of Fatima. Perhaps you might even consider something like an Easter donation to help us continue putting this good content out. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Alleluia. Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm Kennedy Hall. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.